All right, I hope it's clear, guys. We're not messing around. We're not playing church. Do you see who we're partnering with? That's AIM Ministries. They are the most aggressive frontline ministry that I know of, guys. They're the only ministry I know of that has their own SWAT team. Okay, listen, there was a church in California a few years ago, and they did an offering for AIM, and they called it Bullets for Jesus, okay? Uh, well, we're going to call ours Hold the Rope still. We're not going to, okay, okay. But... The whole thing is, listen, in America today, people say, I'm against, you know, sex trafficking. And they put red X's on their hands. And they take a picture and they put on social media. That's, that's all good. AIM decided we are going to move there. We are going to create a SWAT team. We are going to find out where these girls are being abused. And we are going to rescue them in Jesus' name. They partner with local authorities, so the bad, evil men, they go to prison, they get prosecuted. They take these girls, who I don't want to give you too much information because it's hard to hear, but they're single-digit ages usually, five, six, seven, eight. They bring them, think Good Samaritan. They bring them to an inn where they can get comprehensive care. The first thing they do with a seven-year-old, after just giving that seven-year-old some time to breathe, is they help them process by trying to draw pictures of what happened to them. They each get their own mom that invests in them and cares for them. They introduce them most importantly to Jesus. And then as you heard from her story, when they get older, they give them a job. And so guys, we are so excited to partner. And I hope especially the men, the, the rescuing impulse in your heart, when you hear this, you're gonna go, you're gonna gather your family tonight and say, guys, we've gotta give something to hold the rope. Because what we're going to do, by the way, our Hold the Rope offering is an end-of-the-year offering to help our global, local, national partners go further faster. We're asking everyone who calls to Cities Church Home to give a one-time gift before the end of the year to help us help our partners go further faster. So that's how we're going to end the year, guys. But today, we're ending an era in the life of our church. If you're new, don't come back here next Sunday, okay? We're, we're not going to be meeting here next Sunday, guys. Um, guys, it has been five of our seven years have been in this building. By the way, this used to be a rebar warehouse. The building next door used to be a motorcycle shop. When we moved here five years ago from Goler, there were 600 of you that moved with us. We had more than 600 people at the last service. We now have over 2,200 people with us each weekend, and we are ready, guys, to climb the next hill together. Here's what we're going to be doing. We're going online only next week. You know, you know much, I don't want to do that, but that's what we have to do. And the reason we have to do that is we have to take everything and we have to move it. All the kids' stuff, we have to move. We're going to need to get more too as well. We're doing all that. So I'm going to be sending you a brief devotional on the parable of the great banquet. I hope you'll watch it. Maybe you get together with your community group, have breakfast on Sunday morning, watch it together. And then on the 17th, we're going to be launching together. We gave you a sit with me card, okay? A little card on your, um, that you got on your table or on your, on your, on your uh, chair. Here's, here's what that is. We think, totally up to you. We're never gonna just say, invite people, invite people, invite people. We hope, man, if God's doing something in your life, you probably want him to do it in the people that are far from God and close to you in your life. We're just saying, we think the next few weeks with Christmas and with just people love new, right? So here we are. We think it's the easiest invite you're ever going to have. It's, hey, my church just built a big brand new building in the center of downtown. Do you wanna come? Because when you think about someone's next spiritual step, you want them to take the smallest step that they could take that they would take. And 
you want to offer to take it with them. That's why it's a sit with me card. What's the smallest step you could take that you would take? Maybe you'd come to church and maybe I could do that step with you. So let's take a moment, let's pray. Let's be expecting, guys, next time I see you in person is gonna be in the new building, our new home and hub. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for AIM, ministries, frontline, aggressive, gospel-centered, rescuing young girls in Jesus' name, and we thank you for them. We ask that we would give generously to help them build another inn. We thank you, we pray you would continue to expand their ministry to so many of the dark places in the world. Lord, help us as we are getting ready for this new season that you have for us. May this be a sacred and special last service together. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Don't answer this out loud, but what is the dumbest thing that you've ever done, okay? <laughs> not the dumbest thing that your spouse has ever done. What's the dumbest thing? And if it's illegal, definitely do not tell us, okay? Um, it's kind of funny when people do things that are dumb. We laugh at that usually, as long as they don't hurt themselves too bad. In fact, the most iconic movie of my generation was Dumb and Dumber. Remember this movie? And it's funny because guys do things and it's really dumb, but everyone's okay. And, but have you ever heard of the Darwin Awards? I just heard about this this last week. But the Darwin Awards are, war, are, are awards that are given to people, well, I should say in honor of people, who died in very dumb ways. So I was reading about one of them. A guy decided to try to jet ski off of Niagara Falls. Uh, didn't, it didn't go well for him, okay? Well, it's interesting because it's one thing to do something dumb that is funny. It's another thing to do something dumb that leads to death. And the problem with doing dumb things is it's a universal human condition. Albert Einstein, he said this. He said, two things are infinite, the universe and human stupidity. And I'm not that sure about the universe, okay? That's what he said. <laughs> If you'll type to turn to Luke 12, we're gonna be talking about the rich fool today. And as soon as, that's what this parable is called. It's found in Luke 12, verse 13. As soon as I say rich fool, well, Jesus is talking about something that we might say is pretty dumb. But when I say rich fool, you go impossible if you're being honest. You go, rich people aren't foolish? I mean, rich fool, that sounds like an oxymoron, like jumbo shrimp or airplane food or Microsoft works. Like these are two words that you shouldn't put together. Because whenever you meet somebody who's rich, you wouldn't say this out loud, but you would say to them, usually you're like, what do you know that I don't know? What, how educated are you? Where did you go to school? What skill set do you have? We think rich and fool don't go together. That's because when we think about fool, we think about intelligence. When the Bible thinks about fool, it's not talking about your IQ. You could be well-educated and you can be a fool. In the Bible, and this is just good to know, in the Bible, the word fool is a moral judgment. It has nothing to do with your intellect. It has everything to do with your morality. See, here's what happens. This isn't a sermon on the Proverbs, but let me just tell you this. This will help you understand the Proverbs as you read them. But in the Proverbs, there's three guys we meet, right? We meet Simple. Simple is the guy, it's, Simple is your eight-year-old son. It's like he's naive, he's innocent, he's at the beginning of his life, he hasn't made a lot of decisions. We don't know what path he's going to take. And the Simple guy we meet early in Proverbs. And then we meet the guy well, we meet two different guys, folly and wisdom. And the fool is the guy that makes moral decisions in the wrong direction. And the wise person is the one who makes moral decisions in the right direction. And then you ever meet the scoffer? Remember him? Like, who's the scoffer? The scoffer is the fool that's so far down the road that he starts to recruit other people to be foolish. Sometimes he has tenure at university, okay? Sometimes he has a YouTube channel. Sometimes he writes New York Times best-selling books. Well, let me tell you where we're going today. Here, here's the story. You, you, if you don't know this story, it's, a, it's one of Jesus' shortest parables. And I hope by the end, it'll be obvious why I chose it for today and for our final weekend together. 
here's the story. So this guy, he's rich already. That's, and we love rich people. It's like, so we're just interested. We're fascinated by them. Okay, so he's this rich guy. So okay, that's interesting. And he's a rich guy. And we, some of us like this, some of us don't like this. He's a rich guy who keeps getting richer. So he's a rich guy and his land is producing plentifully. I don't know if he's on a natural gas line. I don't know if, he's, if, he's, if he builds on oil. I don't know what happened. It says his land, he becomes even more wealthy. And, I, and, and this is, I'm just summarizing the parable, then we'll look at it. And, and I don't know if this guy was reading Dave Ramsey, but he basically decides, I've got all this money. I, he says to himself, I know what I'll do. I'll rip down these barns that aren't that big and I'll build bigger barns for me. That's basically what every financial planner would tell you to do. And then at the end, he basically walks upstairs and turns the lights out and looks over at his property and he says, this is amazing. You've got a lot of property, a lot of possessions, and a lot of time. And then he goes to bed and he dies in his sleep. And he meets God for the first time. And the first words this man hears is, you are a fool and so is everybody who stores up treasure for themselves and is not rich toward God, end of parable. This is probably the most difficult parable for Western Christians to hear. And so what I wanna do, it's complex. We're gonna talk all about a lot of things this morning. But I wanna give you the big idea of where we're headed. And it's this, that you and I, as we leave this building and as we head to the new building, but not just that, as you leave this year and as you head to the new year, here's the big idea for the sermon in the text. You need a bigger vision for your life than bigger barns. I'm gonna get into it. Is it okay to save? Yes. Is it okay to occasionally build a bigger barn? Yeah, we'll talk about all that. The sad thing is the man wasn't rich toward God. His life was all about himself. He did not bring God into the equation or think about anybody else's needs. So with that said, I want you to turn to verse 13. I gotta give you the background that leads to this parable. So I've told you this before, but there's always a problem before the parable. Here it is. By the way, in verses one through 12, Jesus is just teaching. He's teaching on heaven and hell and the Holy Spirit and all these things. And here's what verse 12 says, or verse 13. It says this. Um, someone in the crowd said to him, imagine, imagine these teachings. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to the divide the inheritance with me. Now, could you imagine if I was up here, this guy doesn't even ask a question. If I was up here and someone just started yelling out to me to do something, could you imagine I'm up here and someone says, tell my coworkers to be nice to me. And I'm like, Pastor Dave, is that you? <laughs> no. This is not the time, no. Um, I will tell you, I've been preaching you know, week in and week out for about seven years and this has happened like three to five times. Somebody starts to talk to me in the middle. It's, it's awkward for me, it's awkward for them, it's awkward for everybody. Th this guy gets the, to the point where he doesn't even ask a question he gives Jesus a command. Now, what's very interesting, you shouldn't be surprised by this, and I love how honest the Bible is. Do you see how this whole parable is gonna start? Do you see the context? Do you see the problem? Here it is. Families fighting over finances. Have you ever seen this? Maybe you've seen, I've seen this in my extended family. I've seen this. I've seen this with friends of mine. See, people are normal until you talk to them about money, right? So if you ever want to meet a person, you know, we have our personas. Our personas are our simplified selves that we interact with everybody with, okay? If you want to meet the real person, start talking to them about their money. I had an experience. I, you know, I haven't always done this. Before I did this, I was in college ministry. And when I was in college ministry, I had to raise support. 
And so to me, I've been talking to people about money for 20 years, but this is easy to talk to all of you broadly, you know, about money, that's easy. To go to someone's house when they know you're gonna ask them for money and to sit across the table from them and to say, I would love you to come on my support team for $100 a month. I just, I promise you, you meet the real person. People don't like when you talk about money and it's, it's in the people that don't, I shouldn't say all people don't like. People who don't like when you talk about money, it's because money is their God. So if you started talking about Jesus in ways that I didn't like and I thought were inappropriate and I thought were wrong, I would get offended. Why? Because, well, Jesus is my God. The exact same thing happens to people when you talk to them about money. So this guy interrupts. Money, by the way, is on his mind. That's why he talks to Jesus about it. How much is money on your mind? How much are you checking your investments? How much are you looking at your bank, bank statements, right? I had an experience with this, okay? Don't judge me. But a couple years ago, I found the Robinhood app. Some of you won't know what this is, but anyone under 40 will definitely know what this is. The Robinhood app is this app that lets you do investing really easily on your phone. And I also discovered cryptocurrency, okay? I wasn't the earliest adopter of it, but I was a fairly early adopter of, of cryptocurrency. And I put a little bit of money in cryptocurrency and I thought about it all the time. I would check it all the time. Money is a powerful thing, guys. Here, here's the thing. He says, I want my brother to split the inheritance with me. Here's how it worked at this point in Jewish history. The older brother, the eldest son, would get two-thirds of any inheritance, and the rest of the one-third would be split with all the other children. So let's just say there's two brothers. This is obviously the younger brother. Here's what he's saying. I don't want one-third of the inheritance. I want half. Guys, money's important. We'll talk about a bunch of things about money today, but money's important. Like, I mean, how big is this inheritance, and how big of a difference is half to a third? Maybe this guy's thinking, I need to get half because it'll affect where I can send my kids to college or the health care that I could have or the home that I could buy. Or maybe I could retire seven years earlier if I had half of the inheritance. Money is a powerful reality in our lives. Well, let, let's see how Jesus responds. So he's, Jesus is not caught off guard. Here's what he says. But he said to him, man, who made me judge and arbitrator over you? So Jesus isn't interested. This is maybe not gonna be encouraging to you. Jesus isn't interested in solving your problems immediately as much as he is in changing your heart. And so he could, he could try to solve the problem. Well, here's what you need to happen, but here's what he says instead. I want you to see this. This is, this is even before the parable. And he said to, if you, were, if you underline your Bible, you might wanna underline them. Who's them? Well, everybody listening, because money is a problem that everybody, the love of money is a temptation for everybody. So he doesn't just say to the one guy, hold on, I wanna to talk to you for a second. He gets confronted by this guy and says, hold on, everybody in here, this is for all of you. And then he says this, take care. By the way, that is not a Southern goodbye, okay? Take care, you know, that's all this is. This is watch out, okay? Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. And then look, does anyone even believe this? For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Now, if I said to you, take care or be on guard, those are two different warnings. But if I said to you, hey guys, and maybe I was able to say this to each of you, imagine this. I said, hey, listen, I don't know how this happened, but uh, we did find out that there is a burglar in your neighborhood. And the police have tried to catch him, but they haven't. And uh, well, they're hoping to, but he's still out there. And so 
just when you go home tonight, be on guard. What would you do? You would immediately put your alarm system on. You would check all your windows. You would call your neighbors. It's like, oh, you would take action steps if we said there was a burglar and that you should be on guard. But often when Jesus says something, or I get up here and quote Jesus about guarding on covetousness and guarding against greed, we go, eh, I hope someone else is listening, you know, to this. Why does he say guard against greed? Because a lot of times Jesus doesn't say to guard against something because, well, some sins are obvious. He doesn't say guard against lust because everyone's gonna go, fine, I struggle with that. But nobody wants to admit that they struggle with greed, right? So he says, he says, he says, guard against all types of covetousness. There's not one type. By the way, coveting made God's top 10, okay? So there's 10 commandments. The 10th one is do not covet. It's the only completely internal of the 10 commandments. And people go, and the apostle Paul later said, it's the commandment that got him, that really convicted him. And the reason that we think it's last and internal is because it's really the, the sin under many other sins. So why do you lie? Well, there's 25 reasons you lie, but it has to do usually with, I covet this person's approval of me. So I wanna sound better than I am or not as bad as I am, one of those two. You only steal after you first coveted. You only commit adultery after you first coveted. Notice he says all types of covetousness. See, the older you get, the more ridiculous the things you covet is. I'm to the point in my life now where I covet other people's lawns. My soul has shrunk to the size of other people's lawns. I go over other people's houses and I come home and I'm like, I want more stainless steel appliances. Coveting is a desire that makes you discontent and often resent other people. That's what coveting does. It destroys your capacity to enjoy what you have. We've all had this experience, right? Like what you have is like, I live in, I would consider a fairly average normal home. And I'm, most times I'm grateful for it. Until I go over my friend's house who has like 10 foot ceilings and I'm like, whoa. And I come back to my house, I'm like, how do I even walk around in here? <laughs> These eight foot ceilings, what's, you know? <laughs> it's like, I remember somehow I got upgraded, you know, we got upgraded to, um, to a really nice car when we were out west one time. And I got in this car, and I've got a decent car. But I got in this car, and not just the seats were heated, but the steering wheel was heated. And it had Apple CarPlay, and I'm like, how do I? And I, then I got back in my car, I'm like, how have I ever driven this thing? And this thing is, but it makes us discontent, but then this is the, the darker part of it and often resent other people, right? We resent that they can send their kids to private school. We resent that they have a second home. We resent how healthy they are. We resent how well-behaved their children are. It's a desire that makes you discontent and often resent other people. Now, what's interesting about Jesus is he says, do not covet, but he gives us a reason why. Now, here's what I want you to understand. In religion, which Christianity is not in the wooden sense, religious, and in moralism, in religion and moralism, you tell people not to do things because they're bad. Some of you grew up in a religious home, and a religious home basically just tells you, do not do that because it's bad. It's like, well, I need more information. That'll work when they're three. But when the person gets older, it's like, well, I need some reasons because it's a lot of fun to do bad things. And so... 
Jesus says, do not covet because that's not what life's about. Did you see that? Here, let me read it again. He says, and he said to them, take care and be on guard against all covetousness for, here's the phrase, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Now, here's what I think. I think the first thing Jesus says, we believe. I don't think it's hard. I, I, I can be done teaching on it. I think anybody can look around and say, yeah, coveting is going to make me discontent. It's a thief of contentment. It's going to make me bitter and resentful toward other people, and I shouldn't do it. We get that. I don't know that we really believe the second part, that our life is not, the quality of our life is not connected to the abundance of our possessions. Right? I don't know if you ever heard of Grant Cardone, okay? Grant Cardone, as, as that I know of, I don't think is a Christian, but he's got, I checked last night, he's got 4.5 million Instagram followers. I am one of them, okay. And uh, he, he, he does the 10X life. He's an interesting guy. He's a good looking guy in his 60s. And there's, he's a type of person. There's many of these people on social media and out there. And his whole messaging is basically make as much money as you possibly can because your life will be so much better if you do. It's what we might call consumerism or materialism. The more that I have in my hands, the happier that I'll be in my heart. And when I watch him, I mean, there's part of me that thinks, you know, I know scripture, and so I'm like, this isn't true, this isn't true. And then I'm thinking, well, Lord, would I be happier if I had a ski in, ski out lodge on the West Coast? I think I would. <laughs> You know, if I, would I be happier if I had a private jet? Yes. No, no TSA, no coach, no connecting flights. It's hard for us to believe that if we have more stuff in our hands, we won't be happier in our hearts. That's why, you know, if I you know, quote you, oh, that, that's not what life's about, you know, it's like, well, what do you know, Kyle? But it's interesting that Jim Carrey, you know, the great Jim Carrey, Jim Carrey, the actor, comedian, in the early 2000s, was one of the most famous people in the world. Remember, he had done Ace Ventura, then Ace Ventura 2, then The Mask, then Dumb and Dumber, then Cable Guy, then Liar Liar, okay? He was at the, the Truman Show. So there was a point, and he was on the cutting edge of being one of the only actors in the world who at the time got paid $20 million for a 90-minute movie. Now, it takes about three months to film a movie. But imagine making $20 million in three months and then doing it again and again and again and again. Well, here's what he said. He said this recently. He's now 62 years old. He said, I wish every person could become rich and famous and do everything they ever wanted to do to realize that's not what life is about. Right. Again, if I said that, you're like, well, you don't know what you're talking about. When Jim Carrey says that, it's like, okay, maybe, maybe this guy's onto something. But it's just hard for us to understand. So again, Jesus has to tell us a parable. So that's all into, as we head into the parable. Here's what he says. And he told them a parable. So the parable is in response to this problem. It's in response to greed. Saying, here it is, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. Now, as soon as we start talking about this, and I say, okay, so Jesus tells a parable about the rich man, all of us go, whoo, okay, not about me. Thank goodness. This is, I'm not rich, right? We all want to say that, right? You're like, you're like, all right, okay, Kyle, I get it. I just hope Mark Zuckerberg's listening. Elon Musk, I hope, I hope Elon Musk has the live stream. Jeff Bezos, we don't think that we're rich. 
Rich is not a feeling. How do you know that you're rich? I'm not gonna do the things I've done in the past to tell you if you make more than $30,000, you're the top 1% in the world. But what I will tell you is the definition, literally the definition of rich in the Bible is to have more than you need. That is literally the definition. How does a person, so people are like, I don't wanna be rich. I just don't wanna ever have to think about money. That's the definition of being rich. Well, here, here, think about it this way. How, I can prove to you that you're rich in a different way, okay? Have you ever run out of hangers in your closet? You're like, I have more clothes than I have hangers, which means I have to get rid of some of these clothes or I gotta go to Costco and get more hangers. Have you ever not been able to park your car in your garage? Because all the stuff that should be in your house is in your garage. So your car is still outside. Have you ever gotten home from the grocery store and you're like, you know, you open, you're like, there's no room in the fridge for all the groceries I just bought. We have so much. Now, Jesus tells this parable, now, a couple things. He doesn't say anything bad about the rich man to begin with. It is not a sin to be rich, even very, very, very rich. It's not a sin to be poor. So some churches teach prosperity theology. We don't teach that here, okay? Prosperity theology, theology is some version of like, the richer you are, the more God must love you. We also do not teach poverty theology. Poverty theology teaches the poor you are, the more God must love you. The Bible says there's godly poor and there's ungodly poor. And there's godly rich and there's ungodly rich. And it's not a virtue to be rich and it's not a virtue to be poor. Do not, you might be surprised me saying this, do not apologize for being rich. Do not apologize for being really rich. We live in a society right now that wants to weaponize guilt and it's easy to make people feel guilty. So all of a sudden you make a lot of money and you're like, oh gosh, I feel so guilty. It's like, we'll get there. You don't feel guilty, you feel grateful. You're like, listen, you're not gonna weaponize your guilt against me, play the victim card and use the privilege language and make me feel guilty about this. Well, we're not playing that game. Uh, here's what I'm gonna do instead. I'm just gonna be very, very grateful and I'm gonna be very, very responsible and I'm gonna be very, very generous with everything I have, but I'm not gonna feel guilty about what I have. So anyway, so this guy, but here's the interesting thing. And this is the first, we gotta learn a lot about money today. The first thing that we learn is, well, did you notice who gets the credit? By the way, if you read verse 16, who gets the credit? The land does. The land of a rich man produced plentifully. Jesus is giving the dirt a lot of credit. And here's what, here's, and this is a teaching, he's telling us something in, in story that he teaches other places, which is that God gives people the ability an opportunity to make money. I mean, you could, for example, if all, if all of us were born, you know, in the second century in India, we'd all be poor. Doesn't matter how smart you are, doesn't matter how hardworking you are, it doesn't matter. We know that the number one predictor of financial wealth in the Western world is how high your IQ is. It's the best predictor of whether or not someone will be wealthy is how high their IQ is. Guys, we cannot change our IQs. If you figure out how to increase somebody's IQ, the Nobel Prize, the Nobel Peace Prize for you. I mean, it's, we can't do it. Okay, so the number one determining factor of whether or not a person will be wealthy happens at their birth. So what you start to do is go, okay, God, I thank you for my, some people go, well, well I'm just, I'm so driven. Where do you think that comes from? You start to realize all of these things are gifts from God. Well, look what happens next. 
It says this. And he thought to himself, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? This isn't a bad, we're gonna get here in a few minutes. You should ask questions when you have more than enough. The problem is he doesn't, he asks himself. He thinks about it, doesn't pray about it. That's the difference. Thinking about it, not praying about it. But then here's what he says. And he said, ah, look, by the way, this guy's so self-centered that they, there's 11 personal pronouns used in this parable. He said, ah, I know, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. Okay, I've never done this before, but I think the best thing for me to do in this time to explain this is I'm going to try to explain the four principles the Bible teaches about money that we have to hold in tension to understand this parable. Because this parable is, you know, you can have a low resolution reading of something. Like you read this and you're like, like a low resolution of reading this parable would be, rich people are bad and saving money is bad. And throw all your Dave Ramsey books away, you know? It's like, okay, well, that's not what we're saying here. So I wanna try to give us four principles, and you'll see this in a minute, they're very hard to hold intention together. But here's why I have to teach this, because I know how every cult starts or every false religion starts. They all start basically the same way. A man or woman alone with their Bible in the middle of the woods. And this man or this woman, they find a passage of scripture that they think teaches a new universal truth to the exclusion of everything else the Bible says. This is why we say here it takes the whole Bible to make the whole Christian. This is why I'm getting up here, you know, until I, until I die and I'm just weekly gonna just teach another passage from the scripture and we're gonna put it all together over several decades. It takes the whole Bible to make the whole Christian. So I'm gonna give you the four principles from scripture about money that you're going to need and that we're embracing as a church. Here's the first principle. Building wealth can often be wise. Don't feel bad about saving. I mean, you, you, the point of this, you don't read this parable and go, okay, you don't go home and go, honey, we're not, no more 401k for us. Our 429 accounts for the kids, no. Let's, no, no investments, we're not, no emergency fund. We're not allowed to save anything. It's like, well, the Bible teaches saving. The Bible in Proverbs 6, Proverbs is probably the clearest place it teaches it, says to the sluggard, hey, don't be lazy, look to the ant. Oh, the ant stores up. Another verse in Proverbs says the crown, the crown of the wise is their wealth. Proverbs 13.22 says this, a wise man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. I want you to think for a second. Many of us may not be able to do that, and that's fine, but I just want you to understand how much money a person's going to need to save across their life so that when they die, they have something to give to all of their kids and all of their kids' kids. It's like, okay, well, somebody, somewhere, was saving a lot of money. So it's okay to save. We'll get into some questions we can ask about that. But I think we, we know that, not just when money with stuff, we have so much stuff. Example? storage units. Remember when, you know, I want our city to grow and be fruitful and all that. And so a couple years ago, I saw that they were building this beautiful brick building right next to the Winston-Salem Dash. 
And I was like, put in some apartments, put in some condos. It's a storage unit. Have you seen this? There are five times as many storage units as there are Starbucks's. We have a problem. You, you know you have a problem. Here's one of the ways culturally to know you have a problem. You know the culture has a problem when the world starts having secular answers to it. The secular answer to having way too much stuff is minimalism. Mom blogs, Netflix shows, social media accounts, all about minimalism because even the world knows we have too much stuff. Okay, so the Bible teaches in many places, but explicitly in the Proverbs, that it's good to save money. Second principle. We, all these words are important. We are to be joyfully, willingly, and sacrificially generous. Now, how do you do both, right? Because, okay, so here's another teaching from Scripture, that you are blessed to be a blessing. And that God gives people more than they need so they can give it to people in need. Now, listen, this is not the mandatory redistribution of wealth. This is not some modern form of socialism, communism. That's why the phrases willingly and voluntary are so key. It's that God gives people affluence and influence, and those often come together, but not always. God will give people affluence and influence for people who don't have affluence or influence. So here's what happens, and this, this is a great example. This happens, this is the time of year this happens. Even non-Christian secular families in our city, the kids go to bed and the wife and husband are talking to each other and they say something like this, how many Nintendo Switch games do our kids need this year? I mean, how big is Christmas gonna be? I mean, how much are we gonna, I mean, are we just gonna spoil our kids? And, and maybe they say something like, you know what, I actually, I heard about this ministry down the street and it's for single moms who can't afford to get their kids something. Maybe we have enough money that we could buy our kids a nice Christmas and help somebody else have a nice Christmas. Well, okay, so at one level, that's nice. It's like, okay, there's, we, we are blessed to be a blessing and we have more than enough and then we should give more than enough to other people willingly and voluntarily, okay? But there's another part of generosity. And here's, here's, this is the part, hard part. Jesus is supposed to be the model and example of what it looks like to be sacrificially generous. So, I mean, you read 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, it's like Jesus gave it all. Jesus was unbelievably sacrificial and the Bible speaks of us giving to the place where it hurts. And so, I, I don't know, this is where you'll, this is just conversation. How, how do you save enough money so you've got your this, that, and the other thing that you feel like God is calling you to do, that's wise. And you're able to be sacrificial. Now, here's what we know. You can't just give everything away. So say I got real emotional during the last song, you know, that we're gonna sing here. And I just, I'm just like so emotional. And I just, afterwards, I just say, that's it, you know. I no longer want to receive a salary from this church. And then I go home and I talk to my wife and kids and say, guys, that's it. Not that we have a lot, but we're liquidating all of it. Everything, we're giving it all away. The moment that I do that and it all leaves, what happens? I become a dependent person. So if all of us decided this morning to give everything away, that would not be good. Because then we just become needy and we all go on the benevolence fund in our church. And that's, but there's no one to give to our church anymore. It doesn't work. 
First principle is we have to build wealth to be wise. Second principle is we have to be joyfully, willingly, sacrificially generous. C.S. Lewis said the only safe rule is to give until you're scared or to give more than you think you can or to give into the fact that you can't do something you otherwise would like to do. Something to wrestle with. The third principle is God gives us material possessions for our enjoyment here. See, there's two extremes in life. There is hedonism and asceticism. Hedonism says, well, everything I have is for me and for my immediate pleasure here and now. And asceticism says, the godlier I am and the holier I am and the better a person I am and the more moral I am is the more things in this world that I say no to. It's like one of the teachings from Scripture from Genesis 1, be fruitful, multiply. God is a good God who loves to bless his kids. And if every time I gave something to my kids, they just said, I'm going to give it to someone else. I'm like, uh, okay. But I'd also give, I, I would like, there's nothing, why does food taste good? Why does drink taste good? And why are lakes and mountains and beaches so beautiful? It's okay. Now, we have extremes. I would say probably most people feel a little bit too free to enjoy the finer things in life too often but I'm always talking to lots of people. So some of you, your conscience is just so sensitive that you struggle to enjoy the things God gives you and you constantly feel guilty. So you can't do that. The, the game of how much are we going to sacrifice is it's going, you're going to have a mental breakdown if you play this. So say, say you decided, say a couple decides after this, like, all right, we're going to be more sacrificial and we're not going to enjoy as many things. And so the wife says, I got an idea. No more nice restaurants eating out. Instead, we're going to give it all away. No more Ryan's, no more Fratelli's, no more Roosters. We're not going there anymore. And the husband says, well, well, then why don't we just not go out to eat at all? We'll just, we'll just eat at home. And the wife says, you're right. That'll save us even more money. And we can give that away. I got it. But when we eat at home, we will not eat meat. And okay, here's, and then they decide, here's what we're going to do. We're, gonna, we're just going to eat rice and beans the rest of our lives. And then the wife goes to the store and comes home with rice and beans, and the husband says, why didn't you buy the store brand? You could, they were 14 cents cheaper. You, you understand, I mean, we need to wrestle with that. Some of us aren't wrestling with any of our financial decisions and our sacrifices, but it doesn't work. And you're going to, you're, it's just not going to be a healthy home if that's constant. You have to hold these in tension. The fourth principle is the most important principle. That's why I saved it to the last. It's, it's number one, it's, it's, it's often wise to build wealth. Principle two, it's we must be sacrificially, joyfully, willingly generous. Number three, we've got to enjoy the things God's given us. Number four, in all of it, we have to love the creator more than the creation. God has to be our treasure instead of treasure. See, the thing is that the reason money is so powerful, this took me a long time to figure out. The reason that money is so powerful is it makes so many promises. So what makes God amazing, and one of the main ways God speaks to us is through promise. But money can do the same thing. Money can basically say, listen, I, unless you get stage four pancreatic cancer, I can heal you. We'll get you to a Mayo Clinic. If you have enough of me, we'll get you to a Mayo Clinic very, very quickly. And money can say, listen, dude, there's a lot of pressures in life, but I promise finances will never be one of them. And God says in Psalm 16, there are pleasures at my right hand evermore, and 
Money says, well, there's pleasure in my hand evermore. And so the temptation is we believe the lie, and there's a lie of money, but there's a lie of stuff. Here's the lie of stuff. Here's the lie of stuff. If you love me, I will love you back. Your car does not love you. Your house does not love you. Your iPhone does not love you. We have to hold in tension these four truths. Let me show you what happens here. He goes on. He says this, verse 19, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Verse 20, but God. Now, sometimes when but God, the phrase but God shows up, you should get the warm and fuzzies. Oh, but God being rich in mercy. Okay, this is not one of those. This is one of those terrifying but gods. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you prepared, whose will they be? So it is the one who lays up treasure for himself, and here's the key, and is not rich toward God. This is the first time God's mentioned, and that's the problem. God isn't mentioned in this parable or in this story or in this man's thoughts until right now. Here's what happens. The man dies. Imagine this happening to you. Imagine you go home and you go to bed and you die in your sleep, and this is the first thing you hear. Idiot! Like, Lord, is that you? <laughs> Moron! You're like, I... Nice to meet you, Lord. Uh, it's not what I was hoping to hear when I met you for the first time. He's called a fool. He did two things wrong, at least. Number one, he was completely selfish. He thought that everything that he had, he gained by himself. He thought everything that he had was for himself. It's the sin of selfishness. It's the sin of narcissism. It's the sin of pride. It is the greatest sin. And he had the sin of presumption, and the sin of presumption is, I think I have more time than I do. He thought he had, we don't know, 20, 30 years left. His soul was going to be taken from him that night. I want us to go back as we close and go to verse 17. I want us to look at a couple things here that I think are helpful as we wrestle together what this looks like. Verse 17 says this, and he thought to himself, he didn't pray, but he thought, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? I want us to be a church that's rich toward God. And if we're gonna be rich toward God, we've gotta ask a couple questions, okay? And the first question that we have to ask, because here's what wealth does, guys. Wealth creates choice. That's what it does. When you don't have a lot of money, you don't have a lot of choices. Meet someone who doesn't have a lot of money and you'll meet someone who has very few choices. Very few choices of where to live. Very few choices of what to eat. Very few choices of where they can go on vacation. Wealth and choice are synonymous. So as soon as you have more than enough, you have choices. So here's a couple questions that you have to ask. Number one, what will I do when I have more than enough? Here's what happens. There's, there's, I, I wanna talk to the older generation in our church and the younger generation. The older generation, we'll, we'll do it reverse. I'll talk to you first. Here's what happens with older people. Uh, they were a family of five or they were a family of six and there were some tight times, but here's what's happened if they're just a normal family and they've been productive and climbed the ladder and saved money. All of a sudden, one day they wake up and they're in their 50s or 60s and they say, I cannot believe it. This is amazing. We just made our last mortgage payment. And the kids are off the payroll. And the tuition is paid. And it's just the two of us. And we're 58. We're gonna like live for another 20 or 30 years and we've kind of always had more than enough, but now we really have more than enough. 
As you get older, you're gonna have to ask, there's gonna be seasons where you're gonna go, I have more than enough. Then there's the, the younger people in our church and, and sociologists would call a lot of people in our church what's called the emerging affluent. You will make more money in the future than you make right now, right? I had a, a couple years ago, this guy was not in our church, but I had a friend and he went to Cleveland Clinic to be a cardiologist, okay? Cleveland Clinic was like, is a top two or three program for cardiology. He went to do his fellowship. So if you understand, not that I do, but I know a little bit about this. If you understand medicine, you know, you, there's medical school and then there's residency. And if you're gonna go on to do something more specialized, you do fellowship. And then you get to be an attending doctor. He was doing a five-year fellowship at uh, Cleveland Clinic, which is like this super detailed heart, cardio, whatever, okay? Um, cardiologist uh, fellowship. And we're friends and I knew him before he, he went there. And he called me one day and he said, you know, I don't remember exactly what he made, it doesn't matter, but just, you know, imagine it, an okay salary. And he said, here's what's going to happen. I know, kind of know the job I'm gonna get. When I get out of this fellowship, I'm a little nervous. I said, why? He said, because I'm gonna make seven times what I make. He said, what should I do? I said, the answer is simple. You move to Two Cities Church and you start tithing. <laughs> I, di I didn't say that, I didn't say that. That's an extreme example, but here's what happens. We're all going to have that, many of us, not all of us, we're gonna have that moment where we're gonna to have to go, okay, I have more than enough. Then you're gonna to have to ask this question. Well, you probably need to ask this question maybe before. What is enough? We're not gonna get religious. We're not gonna get wooden. We're not gonna get like a cult. Every person, and we're not gonna judge each other for drawing the lines in different places. Uh, Forbes magazine this month, very interesting, came out with a study because they're worried about the economy and they're worried about inflation and they're worried about interest rates. So they came out with a study Nationwide study, how much do Americans think today in 2023? This is real time. How much do Americans think that they need to be happy? Answer, $284,000 a year. When they just isolated millennials, $500,000 a year. Pray for the millennials, they're about to be depressed. <laughs> they're about to be depressed very, very, very soon. Part of the reason Listen, you're never going to feel rich if you spend 110% of what you make. You're never going to feel rich if you start confusing needs with wants. Third question is, how much am I going to give? And we're not gonna get wooden and religious on this. The Bible teaches the tithe, we believe in that, but, it, but I think you could at least say this, not nothing and not everything. You know, if you're still a part of the people who say that you're a Christian, but you give nothing to the kingdom of God, you need to write your name next to Rich Fool. Just picture of yourself right next there. Because it's one of, this, generosity is one of the signs that I own my stuff and stuff doesn't own me. Right. So here, here's our heart, guys. As we close in this building, here's our desire. We want to be rich toward God. What does it look like to be rich toward God? I think it's very, very simple. I'm gonna give you three things as we close to be rich toward God. Number one, and this is, this is a, a common theme. I realized after I preached this last night that this is talking to people after, outside, this is even more common than I thought. The number one thing if you wanna be rich toward God is you acknowledge God and you thank God for everything he's given you. That's where it has to start. The, the problem with the rich fool is there's no gratefulness. Lord, Lord, thanks for this land and thanks for my money. And thanks that I end up being on this land that's so plentiful and just thanks for everything. By the way, some of you are wondering, how do I talk to my kids about God in ways that aren't weird and religious, right? You don't wanna be the religious dad. It's like, oh, there's dad 
talking about the Canaanites and circumcision again, you know, it's like, you know, that's the religious dad. Here's what you wanna do. You wanna, you wanna go on vacation with your kids and you wanna say something like this. This is unbelievable. I am so grateful God gave me enough money to take you guys on vacation. You wanna look at your house and go, this is unbelievable, guys. I can't believe it, that God would give us a house like this. You just start doing that, that'll change your heart. The second thing that you've just gotta to decide today, and you just have to, you have to realize this, you have to realize that stuff cannot save your soul. See, what's happened with this man is he, he only thought about himself and not his soul. What you're gonna find today is there's a lot of conversation about the self, there's very little conversation about the soul. There's self-care and there's self-help and there's self-awareness and there's self-esteem. You know what's missing? The soul. The self is you minus your soul and minus the future. See, here's what the resurrection does. The resurrection changes what it means to be rich. We cannot take it with us, but we can send it ahead. I told you at the beginning, you need a bigger vision than bigger barns. Actually, what a, you, need a, you need a vision of different barns, which is the third thing. We wanna build a bunch of different barns for different people in different needs as we move into this new city. See, what if this man would have said, what Job said, you know what Job said when he was confronted, when he was struggling through everything? He said, I love to make the heart of the widow sing. What if he said, you know, I'm gonna build a barn for needy people and I'm gonna build another barn for hold the rope and I'm gonna build another barn for unique opportunities. God has made Two Cities Church and at Northwest Boulevard a very plentiful place. The land here has produced much. So as we close this service, we wanna honor God in it. We wanna commit to being generous and we wanna be committed not to building bigger barns, but different barns for our city, for our nation and for the world. Let's pray. Lord, help us to do it. It's a hard teaching. Lord, help us to be rich toward you. Lord, some of us right now, we need to rip down some barns in our heart, some idols, some coveting, some greed, we just need to say, those barns need to come down and I need to build a bigger barn of worship toward Christ. Lord, would you help us, Lord, as we sing our final song in the building, would we together commit to being rich toward God? In Jesus' name.